Thank you, buddy. Great job. Turn again, if you would, to Luke chapter number 9. Luke chapter number 9. Have you ever really stopped to consider what it really means to be a follower of Jesus? Jesus used the term disciple to describe his followers. It meant learner, one who follows after and learns from someone else. And I want you to understand that being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, means more than walking down an aisle. It means more than shaking a preacher's hand. It means more than having gone through the baptistry or being a member of a certain church. It means being a lifetime follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a lifetime commitment. And it is a change of the way that we do things. If you're living your life without any consideration of what Jesus would have you to do, how he would have you to live your life, then I would surely have to question whether or not you are truly a follower and disciple of Jesus. As we pick up in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is beginning to prepare the disciples for life without him. For the period of time after his resurrection, when he is going to give them the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Last week, we ended up our study with Jesus feeding the 5,000. We see now that the 12 have finally come to the place that they're going to get away to be with Jesus and to have some rest. It mentions here that Jesus was praying at this time and that his disciples are there. I want you to notice four things demanded of a disciple this morning, if you would please. First of all, being a disciple begins by understanding who Jesus is. It says in verse 18, and it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? And so they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. So Jesus turns to his disciples at this time and he asked them the question, who do the crowds say that I am? He's asking, what's the consensus of opinion about me? And according to John's account, the people who had been present at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 had called him a prophet. And they intended to come and take him by force and make him king. The people around Jesus all thought he was somebody special. But they disagreed as to who exactly he was. Many seemed to identify Jesus as John the Baptist since they knew that Jesus sounded a lot like John, especially in his preaching. Some identified Jesus with Elijah, primarily because of Malachi's prophecy, Malachi 4, 5, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. On the basis of that prophecy, many devout Jews were eagerly awaiting Elijah's return. 
Others identified Jesus with one of the prophets of old because of his passion, because of his heart. And the same is true today. The world has its opinion of Christ, but it's often not very accurate. And while it may be interesting what they think, it's really not very relevant. Millions who embrace Islam believe Jesus was a prophet, even a great prophet, but they definitely do not think he is God. The world was willing and still is to accept Jesus as a prophet, a great teacher, a great moral example, but they do not see him as the Messiah, the Savior of mankind. A truth we need to grasp is it is impossible to be wrong about Jesus and to be right with God. The crowd may have their opinions about Jesus, but his followers should have settled convictions as to who he is. But what the world believes or does not believe is irrelevant. After giving the summary of the major opinions that existed at the time of who Jesus was, Jesus turned to his disciples again, and now he asked them that $64,000 question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ of God. This is an intentionally probing question. And the emphasis in this sentence is on you. It's emphatic. And you, who do you say that I am? This is the most important question that a person ever answers. Because if you miss this question, you miss God. And you miss eternity with God. And so heaven and hell are in the balance. To this question, Peter answers for all of them. You are the Christ. Now, although at times and many times, Peter blurts out an answer before he really thinks it through. And sometimes he gets it wrong. But this time he got it right. Jesus is the Christ. Matthew records that Jesus responded to Peter's statement by saying that this was not the result of a human discovery, but was indeed a revelation. It says in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ because God the Father had revealed it to him. Only the Holy Spirit of God can convince you and persuade you that Jesus is the Christ. It is not possible to be neutral about the person of Jesus. And the decision we reach in this matter will be the single most important decision in our lives. Someone advanced, and I'm, I don't know who said this first, but there are four alternatives to identifying the identity of Jesus. First of all, Jesus was a legend. Many believe he was just a myth, just like the stories of all the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. He's just a myth. Others say, no, he was a liar. 
He was not the Messiah, and he was not he knew he was not the Messiah, and yet he told everyone he was. Jesus the legend, Jesus the liar. Some say Jesus was a lunatic. He was not the Messiah, but he thought he was. He was so crazy that he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know who he truly was. But the fourth alternative, and obviously the one we're going to land on, he's not a legend, he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, he's the Lord. Being a disciple begins by understanding who Jesus is. Secondly, being a disciple means understanding what Christ came to do. And this is a matter that even his early disciples struggled with. It says in verse 21, and he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So Jesus swore his disciples to silence, giving them strict orders that they were not to share it with anyone Disciples themselves were just beginning to understand who Jesus truly was and what Jesus came to do. And they had no clear idea at this point. And so they really didn't need to be sharing with other people until they first came to understand themselves. They still expect Jesus to become a reigning king in the here and now. They did not understand the aspect of the suffering and sacrificial death of Christ. And so he points out, he says, I will, I will suffer, just as the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 52 and 53, that the Messiah would suffer. He says, I will be rejected by the people, just as prophesied in Psalm 118, that the Messiah would be rejected. He's going to be killed, but it's not going to end because he is going to be raised. This is something the disciples really didn't understand until after the resurrection. Being a disciple means understanding what Jesus came to do. And then third, being a disciple means to understand what is demanded of a disciple. Verse 23, some of the harder words uh, to really apply in our lives that we find in the New Testament. It says, and then he said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, that is, if anyone wants to be a follower of me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, here's what he needs to do. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Three steps are outlined here, which involve a decision of the will. Discipleship and the following of Jesus is a daily discipline. We follow Jesus one step at a time, one day at a time. First of all, the disciples are called to lay something down. Let him deny himself. It's important to understand what... Jesus does not mean because what he does not mean is what we usually associate with self-denial. By this, we usually mean that we're going to give something up. It's like how many Christians observe Lent by giving up something. Perhaps it's giving up of a bad habit in life or giving up something real important like ice cream in our lives. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not only concerned with what we do, but even more importantly, he's concerned with what we are. Therefore, he's not talking about denying ourselves necessities or even luxuries. But he is talking about 
denying self in an entirely different way. Denying self means that we renounce the right to rule our lives. To deny yourself basically means to relinquish all claims of your life. You renounce the right to run your life. You deny self-trust. You deny self-sufficiency. You deny the feeling that we are able to handle life by ourselves and run everything to suit ourselves. If you are a Christian, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said these words, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The truth is that the level of commitment among the average Christian in the typical church is very low. Most of us want to follow Jesus until it interferes with our plans. It goes something like this. Okay, I'll serve you, Lord, but it's not going to get in the way of my family. Or, Lord, I'll serve you, but I can't conflict with my job and my opportunities for advancement. I'll serve you, and then you can fill in the blank of whatever it is that you might place there. But Jesus said, if you don't forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Secondly, he says, the disciple is called to lift up something. Let him take up his cross. To understand what this cross Jesus refers to is, we, we need to talk about what it isn't. The cross in your life is more than just an event in history. This verse says it is a way of life. The cross is for all those who follow Christ. This verse says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow his cross daily and follow me. So what are your crosses in your life? Consider that, first of all, your Christ is not having a nutty boss. It's not having an unfair teacher. It's not having a bossy mate. It's not an illness or a handicap. We say, that's my cross, but it's not. That is not what Jesus meant. A cross comes from specifically walking in the steps of Jesus. It comes from living out the business and moral ethics of Christ in our life. Our crosses come from and are proportionate to our dedication to Jesus. Difficulties in life are not a sign of living for Christ. Difficulties for Christ are. When Jesus spoke of this Christ, everyone in his audience knew what he was referring to. John MacArthur says this, the cross was a very concrete and vivid reality. It was the instrument of execution reserved for Rome's worst enemies. It was a symbol of torture and death that awaited those who dare raise a hand against Roman government. It had been estimated that perhaps 30,000 crucifixions occurred under Roman authority during the lifetime of Jesus. When Jesus says that we are to take up our cross, he is saying that we are to li live as dead to
to ourselves. We are called upon to take up our cross for once and for all time and to follow Jesus. We're not to look back. We're not to turn around. We're not to lay down our cross. The phrase has the idea of being willing to go all the way for Jesus. No holes barred, no turning back, just a steady, humble walk that follows his footsteps and his path through this world. And third, the disciple is called to live something out. Let him follow me. If a disciple is a follower and we are disciples of Christ, then it follows that we are willing to be led. We are willing to be led into places that perhaps we don't understand, even places that are dark and scary and even painful and unpleasant because we trust and we follow the shepherd. This means obey me. It means to choose on a daily basis to do and to say what Christ commands that we do and say. In the original Greek, there are three steps, and each of them have an interesting sequence of tenses. All three verbs are imperatives. That means they are commands. But the call to deny oneself and the call to take up one's Christ is also aorist. That means it is it is an accomplished thing. This means that discipleship involves the fundamental commitment of self-denial and bearing one's cross while The call to follow Christ is constant and growing out of that commitment. To follow is a long and continuous action, long obedience in a single direction, constant obedience to Christ in thought, word, and action. This struck the disciples and the multitude with a very solemn and serious impact. In fact, John's account tells us that it is this point that many of those who had been following Jesus turn back and follow him no more because the words to them seem to be harsh and demanding. To be a disciple, one must be fully committed to his plan for your life and not your own. But here's the good part. His plan is always better. It may be harder, but it's always better. And fourth, this morning, being a disciple means living with an eternal perspective. Jesus offers three reasons as to why it is necessary or essential to live in this difficult manner. Each of which, in your Bible, is introduced by the English word for. So you might underline those words as they come up. The first is found in verse 24. Jesus says... For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. His statement about losing and gaining is a paradox. And a paradox is a statement that seemingly at first glance is absurd, but actually communicates a profound truth. To help us get a handle on this great truth, let me substitute some other words and phrases for the word lose. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life, play it safe, will lose it, that is, waste it. But whoever loses, that is, surrenders his life, for me, will find it. He will be rewarded. 
So Jesus says the person who lives only to please themselves wastes his or her life. Nothing could be more opposed to the philosophy of our age. The world says if you don't take care of yourself, nobody else will. Jesus is saying, especially to the disciple in the first century, the time will come when you can save your life by abandoning your faith. And the same is true today. If you try to save your life by protecting yourself from any opposition from the world or by accommodating yourself to the world, what results is a real loss of real life. Jesus says that if you hold on to your life and live completely for yourself and your own selfish dreams, you'll end up with nothing. But if you give up living for yourself and surrender your life to him, you'll end up with everything. To miss the only one who can give you eternal life is to miss life itself. By living our lives for ourselves, we can forfeit eternal life but by living our lives for Jesus we have eternal life John Piper wrote a book entitled Don't Waste Your Life the argument of this book is that most people including Christians are wasting their lives by living only for themselves Piper gives an illustration of a couple who were featured in Reader's Digest, who took early retirement from their jobs and moved to Florida. He was 59 and she was 51. The story was about how they enjoyed their leisure retirement, cruising the Gulf in their 30-foot boat, playing softball, and collecting shells. Now, this hits home for me because of my age. It's talking about the American dream and living for retirement. But Piper wrote, at first when I read it, I thought it was a joke, a spoof on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-giving life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of accounting. Look, Lord, see my shells? That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest, don't buy it, don't waste your life. The danger is that we will settle for a temporary reward. The Bible warns that a person who lives only to accumulate more and more possessions and lives a self-centered, indulgent life is already as good as dead. There is clearly a cost to living as a disciple, but clearly the reward is exponentially more than the investment. In verse 25, Jesus says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? This really is a rhetorical question. And he's saying, would it be wise, a wise investment for one to 
forfeit their life in exchange for a vast sum of money. Think about that. If I offered you this morning, I said, I'd give you $2 million if you'll give me your life. Well, that's stupid. If I don't have a life to enjoy those riches or anything else for that matter, what's the good? He says, that's ridiculous. And finally, in verse 26, Jesus makes it clear that there will be no secret disciples. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory in his fathers and of his holy angels. I want to close this morning with a passage from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. I think I've shared it with you before, but it's so powerful. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, God is going to invade this earth in force. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then? When you see the whole universe melting away like a dream and something else that has never entered your mind to conceive comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others. What good would it do for us to choose him then when there is no choice left? For this time, will God be without disguise? Something so overwhelming that it will strike you either with irresistible love or irresistible horror. It will be too late then to choose your side. For there is no use saying you choose to lay down when you have no choice and it is impossible for you to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover what side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us the chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Let's pray. Father, we realize that it's easier to talk about being a follower of Jesus than it really is to do so. And we realize that your word tells us that if anyone comes to the Lord Jesus, accept him as their Savior, they are changed. They are changed creature. So if we can live our lives without change, without reflecting on how Jesus would have us to carry out our lives, then we probably ought to look at whether we really are a follower and disciple of Jesus. Father, we pray for your strength. We know that we are weak. We know that we fail. But we also know that you are full of grace and compassion and that you're standing ready to receive us, whether that for that is the first time as we come to you in salvation or whether it's we realize that we've gone our way and we want to come back to you, that you're always that loving Father ready to receive us. Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know you in a personal, intimate way, then it is my prayer that today they might know that. If there's one here today that's struggling, then, our Lord, you I pray that you'd wrap your arms around them. I pray that your sweet Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts and help them to know that 
you love them and you care about them. Father, for each of us, help us to be better and truer followers of our Lord and Savior. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?